0: Yeah. Yeah. Reading of his word. Amen. Good morning. You know, sometimes when you're preaching through a book, there are some very obvious breaks, sections of scripture that it's really easy to say, okay, you know, I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to preach an entire chapter this week or I'm not going to cover a, a huge, long section of Scripture. And we've kind of done that intentionally the last uh, Sunday. We we covered the beginning of this chapter. This Sunday, we're covering the end of the chapter. But what I encountered in doing all of this is that there is a really long section of Scripture here that I feel it would be wrong to break up into little pieces. It's, uh, it's difficult sometimes when you find the words of Jesus in many books in, in the New Testament. When Jesus speaks, he does so in small sections, little bits and pieces here and there. Of course, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which lends itself well to kind of breaking into pieces to dissect and discuss, although there is a larger ongoing theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You could preach one sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, or you could preach a dozen sermons from the Sermon on the Mount, and I think I know someone who did that recently. Um, you can also go to, to passages like um, later on in John, when Jesus spends more time praying than he has spent speaking for the entire rest of the book. And and you can easily find a lot of teaching and meat and, and things to pull out of that section that are of value. Easy to break it into little pieces, I think, and and find bits and, and stuff to kind of uh, expand on in discussion. Again, you could also preach it in one sitting. This is one of those passages, though, that I don't, I don't know that you could break this particular section up into little bitty pieces, the way that Jesus speaks, the things he has to say. And so this morning, we're going to read this entire section here. But I want to begin with a particular statement that Jesus makes. At the end of what we read last week, Jesus tells a paralyzed man, get up, Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And for us, this is a miraculous moment, right? This is, this is a good thing. This is something that happens that we all would say, Jesus has done the right thing here. He has brought healing to a man who has spent 38 years of his life unhealed facing difficulty and frustration, a man who can't do anything for himself. And that was the point of our sermon last week, is that Jesus finds people and he gives them something that they cannot receive themselves. And overwhelmingly, what he gives them is himself, his time, his investment in who they are, his investment in what they are about. And, and it takes time for different people to respond to D- Jesus in the way that he, they're eventually going to respond to him. Nicodemus is going to take the vast majority of Jesus' ministry to really have a reappearance in connection with Jesus. This man immediately uh, runs off, and he doesn't even know Jesus' name yet. And it's kind of this wonderful little moment there that happens. But what pops up, the thing that stands out about this particular passage to me, is, is what comes immediately after. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now we'll, we'll read the rest of that in just a moment. He was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now we read the Old Testament and we know that the Sabbath is this recognition that the seventh day is a, a holy day, it's set apart to remember that the Lord rested on the seventh day. And we read in the law the the reasons and ways in which uh, one might observe the Sabbath, And, and God commands the Israelite people to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And it became very important to the Jewish people over the course of time that they not only remember the Sabbath, not only keep it holy, but that they do so in exacting ways. Ways that Scripture didn't necessarily elaborate on. Ways in which uh, individuals asked, well, what exactly constitutes work on the Sabbath? Is it okay to to lift a donkey out of a pit? When Jesus says, which one of you, if if your uh, donkey were to go into a pit, wouldn't rescue him? How much more so is it important to save the life of a man, right? There were questions about whether or not you could draw water from a well. And if you used a rope, you could not draw water from a well because a rope was an implement of work. But if you used your handkerchief or your garment as a way of dipping the water down, it wasn't work because that wasn't handling things that were tools for work. There were all these discussions about what did and did not constitute work. And there were two groups of thought within Jewish society. There were those that were strict legalists. Anything that even remotely resembled work could not be done on the Sabbath. Nothing. You couldn't couldn't go for a long walk. Now, they had like a specific number of miles you could walk, like a a three-quarter mile walk that you could go on, and that was fine. If you went any further than that, then you were in big trouble. But three-quarters of a mile, that's okay. Then you have the other group of people that said, you know, we don't think that God was quite so strict with, the idea of what work on the Sabbath might look like. Now, you shouldn't go and make your living on the Sabbath. Certainly not. And ideally, you've prepared your food the day before so that you can eat on the Sabbath. But if you haven't, it's all right to you know gather a little bit for yourself and, and prepare something to eat for you and your family. And Jesus, in many ways, seems to kind of fall into that second category. If you look over and over again at the way that Jesus approaches life He's constantly doing little works, or in this case, big works, on the Sabbath. But it's always with some specific intent behind it. Brian, uh, Brian was joking with me when he came in this morning. I asked him how he was doing. He said, well, no one's given, given me any reason to be upset yet. And then he asked if I was going to do it, and I said, well, you know, reading through the life of Jesus, there are times where Jesus very clearly makes people upset. I think if we're not making someone upset, maybe we're doing things wrong. And Jesus has made people upset here. And we see why immediately off the bat, right? This is a very clear statement about what Jesus has done wrong in the eyes of these individuals. When John uses the word the Jews, he is not talking about the broader Israelite community. He's talking about those who are a part of the Sanhedrin. Okay? There's not a regular common Jew just walking down the street who has no education in, in um, all the rabbinic literature who's going to look at Jesus healing a man and say, he's done the wrong thing! But there are a lot of people who have positions of authority, who have dedicated their lives to the study and discernment of Scripture that see what Jesus does and immediately say, you know, he's violating my understanding of the law. What he's done is wrong. Now, they couldn't find a chapter and verse to quote to you to tell you the ways in which he had violated the law. All they could say is, my interpretation of what constitutes work on the Sabbath is what he's guilty of. This is something that Jesus actually really riles against in the book of Matthew. Go and read the book of Matthew and read what it is that Jesus says at the beginning of each one of these little pieces of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And most of the time, Jesus quotes Scripture with that, you have heard that it was said. But then he makes it a point to clarify what you have heard is not the whole story. And we showed as we went through the Sermon on the Mount the number of times that Jesus would quote a particular scripture. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you. And then he would find something else within scripture that balanced that concept, that gave it context and a way for us to understand it. In fact, one of the things that I've come to realize over the last several years is that very often when you read Scripture, it's very possible to take away a principle from a single verse that has absolutely nothing to do with God's intent and will. I don't know if you've realized that or not. It's possible to go and read the book of Proverbs and pull out a single proverb and say, By all rights, I should have $10,000 billion in the bank because I live the way I'm supposed to. But my bank account doesn't reflect that, which means the whole Bible is bunk. And there are people that live that way, that encounter individual scriptures, hold it up as the moral uh, absolute for their life, and then when they encounter something that contradicts it, they find themselves leaving the faith entirely. This is what we call deconstruction, or negative deconstruction, catastrophic deconstruction. It's when we have a foundation that is built on uh, individual verses, proof-texted here and there and there, in order to build a faith that's not founded on the overarching story of Scripture, but founded on the things that maybe tickled our ears and made us really comfortable for a period of time. This is what the Pharisees have done. They have built mountains of individual verses and weighted them in such a way that this verse must in fact be the superior verse. And this down here, this is, we can mostly ignore this because this up here is the one that I value the most and so you should value it the most. And this is the way that you should live your life. And if you don't live your life the way that I live my life, then you're condemned for all of eternity. And Jesus comes along and he he throws that wildly, wildly out of balance for them. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. See, when Jesus encounters a group of Pharisees, he knows that every one of them would affirm that God is righteous, that God is the God who does not sleep, that the God that they serve is a God who will do what is right at all times. Those are the words that they would confess themselves. In fact, they would find psalms and proverbs and the wisdom of Solomon to be able to quote and and build out this theology of a God who is tireless, who is not in need of rest. And yet, at the same time, they would hold up this concept of the Sabbath that says no one is allowed to work because God rested on the seventh day and did nothing. There was no thing that God did on this day. And so you should do nothing on this day. And if you do even good on the Sabbath, you are in violation of a command that is immutable. Sometimes I feel like that's how I approach Scripture. Historically, anyway. I I think I'm moving on from that at this point. Uh, I think I've, I've kind of seen in Jesus this realization that you know there there is a hierarchy there is a greater way there is a better way in fact one of the things we spent an entire summer talking about is what Paul calls the better way right this way of love and and in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 he really expands on that concept that there is something that dictates the life of an individual who is committed to Christ one who is living in the spirit one who reflects the will of the father That is the way of love. And in this story of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath, a man who has spent 38 years of his life feeling hopeless and without anyone to hear his cries, Jesus shows a tremendous amount of love that maybe violates the strictest interpretation of the Sabbath. Interestingly, uh, you know, Don is showing the Chosen on um, Sunday mornings during class. Bits and pieces of it, and uh, last night, two nights ago maybe, my family was watching it, and I was I was super excited because we we got to watch Jesus do the thing I preached about last week, right? And it was this really exciting moment—the moment that it began to happen. I'm like, oh, I know what this is going to be. I know what this is going to be. This is so exciting. And then they tied in, in the following episode, other works of Jesus on the Sabbath day. And one of the things that they showed is that there's like this wrestling amongst the Pharisees in their own minds, these rabbis in various places, that they see Jesus do good works and they're like, on the one hand, isn't this exactly what the prophet said would happen? Isn't this exactly what we're expecting from the Messiah? But you know what? It really conflicts with my idea of the Sabbath, and I don't know if we can report this or not. Maybe we should report it and leave it to someone else to make a decision about whether or not this is a good thing. I think we can make a determination today about whether or not what Jesus did was a good thing. Because I want to I ask you this morning, if there were someone in this room this morning that we loved and cared about, someone who had been ill for a long time, someone whose body was weak, someone who had struggled and cried tears over their situation. And Jesus walked in this room in the middle of my sermon and began to heal that person. I hope none of us would be offended by the fact that our service was interrupted for that. I hope that what we would do is say, isn't it wonderful what God has done today? All of our plans are out the window. Everything's been disrupted. It's all just completely different in light of what we have just witnessed. And we would spend time talking about glorifying, edifying God for the things that he had done in our presence. That's what I like to think we would do. But we have people in Scripture that are just as religious as we are. And in the face of Jesus taking a holy day and doing good works, they vacillated between amazement and anger. But but Jesus' Father is working, even on the Sabbath, tireless, without, without a need for rest, a willingness to find rest. And then John gives us a second reason that the Jews are upset with him. He says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So now, here's the thing. You, you heard me say they would admit, they would confess that there is no way that they would ever say that God was not active and working even on the Sabbath, although they would find ways to diminish that fact so that you couldn't work on the Sabbath. And now they say, look, we know who the Father he's talking about is. It's not that Joseph guy off in Nazareth. He's talking about God. And we're angry because he's saying that he's doing what God is doing. He's calling him himself the son of god he's calling god his father that means that he thinks that he is god and jesus then begins to preach at them and the preaching that jesus offers is is pretty profound i want you to hear his words i'm actually not going to flip through the slides if you have your bible with you you can turn to john chapter 5 Uh, Picking up in verse 19, the beginning of it will be right here on the screen. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Likewise. to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. I'm going to repeat Jesus' words here really quick. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom He has sent. when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is, there is no one who accuses you. Or there is one, rather, who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? This is such a convicting passage of Scripture. I don't, know, I don't know if it is for you. It is for me. He tells these men who have studied Scripture their entire lives, look, you, you have dedicated yourselves so much to Scripture because you think the Scripture will give you life. And in looking so exactly at little bitty pieces, you think you've unlocked the code. And you have missed the big picture of what Moses was writing about in the first place. Look, I'm not here to judge you, he says. Now, he is. He's the one who gets to judge in the end. I'm not here to accuse you. Moses does that already. Because in finding all the passages that you pile up for yourself to live correctly, to to make sure that you're filling in the right equation, to have the right code, you have missed the beauty of what God has been doing through the ages. If you really read the scriptures, you would know that they were about me. You want to nitpick about the Sabbath and whether or not it's okay to heal a man on the Sabbath to make his body whole? Notice that Jesus talks about the resurrection in this passage, okay? So uh, we've talked about this before, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but the Pharisees are the group that believe that there is life after death in which the body is reanimated and people come back to life and they leave the grave that the body is significant enough that God has a plan for it beyond death. He says, yeah, there's a resurrection, all right. There's a resurrection for those who do good and a resurrection for those who do evil, and they are going to be qualitatively different things. You don't want me to heal the body of this man on the Sabbath? same body that you believe God is so intent on raising again, I don't believe you've really read the scriptures. I think you've searched them. You guys know the difference between searching and reading? Uh, this, is, this is something I've thought a lot about recently. Um, I like to use, did my mic die on me? No, I'm just down a little low. I've recently uh, been thinking a lot about the way that I use my my, uh, study tools. I've got this whole software package called Logos that's like a thousand different books, and it's got all the different translations of the Bible. And sometimes the temptation is, instead of to read those books, I search those books. I comb through for specific words and phrases and things that are going to be particularly delightful to my ear. Sometimes the temptation is to do that with Scripture, right? Uh, We've got these wonderful things called concordances, and they're not bad. I don't want to disparage concordances. It's wonderful to be able to be like, I know that there's this word that's used in a particular passage, but I can't remember the passage. I don't remember what book. I'm going to go look for that particular word and then find all the ways that it's used within Scripture so that then I can find that one passage. That's a great use of a concordance. Or the ability to say, how is this word commonly and regularly used? That's a wonderful use of a concordance. But sometimes, I think that what we do is we say, I'm going to find all the passages in Scripture that deal with the Sabbath, and then I'm going to compile them in such a way that I can throw them in the face of John Germain, who's supposed to be retired, but he's working all the time. Don't you know, John, that the retirement is holy and sacred? Sorry, I've got to pick on John this morning. Your retirement is your Sabbath. Don't you know how to use the Sabbath? Jesus says, Yeah, you guys have done a really good job of searching the scriptures, but you haven't read them. You might know them inside and out, piece by piece but you don't know the story God's telling. Because if you did, you would see that it is right in front of you. This is a difficult thing for those of us in the Church of Christ. I don't want to disparage us alone, right? I think there are other groups that have struggled with this same thing historically. Sometimes we, we have searched the Scriptures and missed the story. I will hold my hand up and, and admit guilty to that. And I want to encourage us this morning that I think if we were to hold the Jesus of Scripture up to our searching of the Scriptures, there are plenty of times that we'd say, you know what, I just think Jesus is wrong. I think Jesus has done the wrong thing here. How dare Jesus be so casual about worship? He talks about knocking down the entire temple. What in the world is he thinking? How dare Jesus be so casual about following the particular rituals and routines that we've established for ourselves? How dare he? But I think if we've read the story of Scripture, what we find is that Jesus is constantly calling us not to search the Scriptures, but to know his story. That doesn't mean that both can't be of benefit. Read the scriptures, study them intently, know what's being said there, love the word of God because it is valuable in pointing us to Jesus. But if we encounter something within scripture and we read it in such a way that Jesus is diminished or the teachings of Jesus are diminished or the life that Jesus calls us to is diminished, we are living proof of what Jesus tells the Pharisees, that you can search the scriptures and miss Jesus entirely. I don't want that to be us. I don't want that to be me. I want us to be people who love the story of the God who has decided to redeem, who loves each one of us enough to heal what is broken, even if he's got to do it on the Sabbath, even if he's got to interrupt worship. Even if he speaks to us in the middle of a prayer, hey God, hold on a second. I know you have something you want to say to me, but I'm busy talking right now. I've got to make it through this prayer. You wait just a moment. Let's not be like the Pharisees. Jesus bears witness to the God of the universe. The God above the universe. And every action, every word, Every detail of his life is a witness to the truth of who he is and what he cares about. And as we've said in studying the Gospel of John, Jesus has invited us to dwell with him. Come and see where I'm staying. Let's come and see where Jesus stays. Let's take on his mannerisms and his habits. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are weak. We are reliant on our own wisdom all too often. And we are good at building hierarchies of things we care about and things that we think we should neglect. We're good at taking one verse and using it as something to hold power over the other. When what we find is that you are constantly offering us the opportunity to balance and shift and come to a richer and deeper understanding that you are not static in your, your discernment, but you are very discerning and that there is never a wrong time to do the right thing, that there is never a wrong time to do what loves and affirms and builds up. And when we judge others by our standards, as your son has said, we so too will be judged. So instead, help us judge people not by our standards, by the only question that you have given us, the only only guide that we might have, which is love and the image of your Son and the ways that he has loved us. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue our worship this morning. And uh, as we do, I want to invite you, if there is something you need from the church, we want to encourage you uh, to, to seek someone out at the back of the auditorium. They'll pray with you. They'll hear what it is that you need, uh, and we want to make sure that you are loved well today. Let's, uh, let's worship.